0: Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Well, O'Toole, you're going to hear rustling papers today because I have a lot of stuff to start on. with. <laughs> okay. Which is sort of exciting, Handouts. right? Yeah, but
1: I think we had a couple of things from our listeners, didn't we? We did, and I thought this following comment by Kathleen was very insightful about the girl on the train. Go She for contacted her. us over Twitter, and she said, I think it got confused on wanting to be a fatal attraction... Whereas it's really a sleeping with the enemy, keeping this focus oh, in sleeping mind. Sleeping with
0: the enemy. Oh my God, with, Julia, with Roberts. Julia Roberts. Of course. Roberts. I've, I've watched well, huh? it many, many times. Yeah. I thought that was a great comparison. It is. Really good, Kathleen. Really. Yeah. yeah. Our listeners are so smart. I know. I
1: know. I know. <laughs> oh, well. I <laughs> <Love> them. <laughs> Okay, and then Frances from New York City, this just cracked me up. She said, I just listened to your podcast, and I would like to say I tried to go to two different Luke's diners last week for the (laughs) coffee shop thing, and there were hundreds of people in line. I considered going in late to work, sorry boss, but instead of slunk off in defeat. Huh. That bodes very well for the Netflix reboot.
0: I think it's going to be right up there with House of Cards in terms of how many people watch it the first weekend that it comes out. We could have had pop-up White Houses. <laughs> yes, we could have. Yes. All right, and then also one of our was um, one of our listeners, and I can't even remember which one it is, told me she really liked American Crime, so I went back and watched it. I watched the you know the first season of it. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Why did I not watch it before? I remember watching the pilot when it first came uh-huh. out with Timothy
1: Hutton and yes, Felicity and Huffman. Felicity
0: Huffman. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean the the entire group all together. It's like the demise of a family and so many different levels and and racial prejudice and. Death and it just was so complex about how things are never what they appear, which in today's world is really where we all are, anyway. So thanks for having me. I only watched season one though, and I think they're up to season four now. And each season is wow. totally different. So I'm not sure I'm going to have the time to do the rest of them, but you know, well, well done. And then your Mr. Elba was in the news oh, this week. Luther. He was. So he's playing Mandela. You mm-hmm. knew that, right? We talked about it a little while ago. He's playing Mandela, and, I mean, it just makes me laugh. He decided he wanted to know what it would feel like to be locked up for 30 years, so he went and spent one night... (laughs) In the jail. This is like, who was the, was it room where she went and said she stayed for a week in her in her apartment, in her home in L.A.? Yes, Brie Larson to prepare for the role. And do you remember I made fun of her then about, well, I'm not really sure that sitting in 6,500 square feet <laughs> overlooking L.A.'s harbors <laughs> is the same thing as being locked up in a nine-by-nine room with no windows. But, um and I do have to laugh because he actually says that he learned a lot from spending the night locked up in the jail. You know, I don't know that I could handle the karma really of yeah. a prison. Well, and spending the night in a prison. Right, well, let me quote him for you because I know you—you know—he's one of your your peeps, right? It's haunted for sure, says Elba, describing a long, unpleasant night in South Africa's Robin Island. Where Mandela's former prison, now a museum, is located. At his request, Elba was locked in a cell and left for the night. He couldn't sleep. By morning, though, the experience had provided the perspective he was seeking. And you want to know what his perspective, his learned perspective, is? Oh, do tell. Okay, I have to be patient. He says about channeling Mandela's fortitude. I have to wait for the door to open. And I, that I don't. I mean, very I. mandela It does, <laughs> but. Seriously? I mean, come on. You had to wait till what, 7 a.m. for the door open? I, I, I'm I, sorry, I shouldn't make fun, and at least he's trying. I mean, I think that's great. I well, do. It's interesting that you bring up Room, because
1: guess who I saw yesterday at the Boston Book Festival? Not the film festival, the book festival. Who? Emma Donahue. Oh. Who huh. wrote the book uh-huh. and the adapted screenplay huh. for which she was nominated for an Oscar. Well, there you
0: go. But I did want you to know that your Elba is really trying to find his way... Through the abyss of what it all means to be locked up for 30 years. Okay, and did you hear the news out of Australia? No. They did a
1: survey of Australian viewers in uh-huh. honor of the 60th anniversary of television in Australia. And they asked them to rank their number one favorite Australian show oh, I'm sure of was, all time.
0: It must have been McLeod's Daughters. It was. Uh, it was. So congratulations to Posey yeah. Graham Evans, right? the writer friend. and creator. Yeah, that's one of my favorite shows, that's for sure. And now we're going to do two very different. Uh, one is a we saw the pilot of divorce, mm-hmm. and then the other one we just came from a screening of the accountant. That's right with Ben Affleck, and I have to laugh. It's a huge payoff at the end, but you have to wait a really long time. It's like standing in line for an Apple phone that you don't have to stand in line for a week later. You know, and it's great getting the phone, but did you really have to stand there for 24 hours? I'm not even sure the payoff was that great. Oh, I thought it was by great. the time I applied
1: depreciation and amortization, <laughs> it was really worth nothing.
0: Yeah. You know, he plays somebody who has, uh, has trouble expressing his feelings.
2: Your son is a remarkable young man. It wouldn't surprise me if he has more in common with Einstein, Mozart, and Picasso than he does with us.
0: But his, his at-rest face, you know how sometimes people's at-rest face, like, I've been told mine's really mean, and it is. I have to work to, like, make the corners of my mouth stick up, and, you know, people have different at-rest faces. And his at-rest face has, it's either a smirk or close to a smile as if something amuses him. And therefore, it was very hard for him to play that role, I thought. See,
1: I thought his at-rest face resembled John Travolta a little bit. Really? Interesting. Mm -hmm. I can see
0: that. And you know who should have played it? Matt Damon.
1: Oh! I was thinking, I had the sense that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were joking around, and Ben Affleck bet Matt Damon that he could take Goodwill Hunting and the Jason Bourne franchise (laughs) and turn them into one
0: movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I thought Norton should have played it. He would have been
1: great. Yeah, That's you know, again, Holister, the problem with this right.
0: movie is, A, it wasn't edited enough. We were in there two and a half hours. The Are you aware of this? The was a mess. Yeah, it was a mess. Mm-hmm. And, but, it, but the premise and the plot could have been wonderful, but also it was Norton. Norton could have definitely played that role really well.
1: He would have done great. Ben
0: Affleck was miscast, and what is, why does he... You know, I asked him when we when we saw we saw another preview of his coming out in January, and I mm-hmm. said, you know, did you like him in the town? And I liked him in the town. Mm-hmm. And you know, he he's either great and perfect for a role, or he takes some of the roles that he shouldn't be taking.
1: But you know what? I still have to give it to him as a director because he directed the town.
0: Yeah, he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And his movies that he directs, yeah. they do a really good job well, of maintaining tension. <laughs>
0: Okay, but he directed Argo, and he
1: was t- he was miscast. And yet, still, that movie maintained my interest. I thought that movie was really good. Did this ma- movie
0: maintain it? Did the account? No,
1: I thought it was all over the place. The trailer was excellent.
0: Oh, my God, it was the best part. So they really... If they had extended it five minutes, we could have had the whole thing in 20 minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. But instead, this one, the screenplay was so
1: disjointed that the flashbacks didn't work to when he was a boy with autism. And his parents were seeking treatment. All of a sudden, Ben Affleck's in jail. All of a sudden, he's an accountant for the mob. But they left off all the coat hangers. They just showed us the coats. So they told it in the wrong order, which had the effect on me of making me not care. So instead of saying, wow, okay, how did he become this accountant to the mob? It was told out of order. It was. In a bloated way. Right. It was a very long movie. But
0: some of the payoffs at the end were amazing. Now, also, do you think the Jackson Pollock was real?
1: I'll say this about the Jackson Pollock. I remember a museum curator told me once that Jackson Pollock always wanted his art to be displayed horizontally. Huh. And when it was in Ben Affleck's little house there, it was
0: on the ceiling. Because Jackson Pollock was still It was Pollock still, verti- it was still vertical. It was still shown vertically. In the end,
1: it was shown vertically. Yeah. But Ben Affleck in the movie knew how to hang it.
0: Well, there you go. And what did you think
1: of Anna Kendrick? I I loved her in Up in the Air. I enjoyed her in both the Pitch Perfect movies. I thought this was a terrible role. Who are you?
0: I actually thought she carried it quite well. Now, she said she based her character on her mother, who is a real accountant. Oh, who went over the script and explained the math to her, (laughs) which, by the way, maybe they should have had at the end of the credits. It would have been really cool. You know how sometimes at the end of the credits they bring something like that in? Mm -hmm. It would have been wonderful, I thought, if they'd layered her mother in, explaining some of the math to the rest of the world. I would have loved to have seen a video of her mother explaining it because her
1: dialogue was so thankless. And even when she enters that conference room and John Lithgow turns to her and says, that'll be all dear, and then he says to Ben Affleck, Mr. Wolf." I was like, oh, he's Mr. Wolf and she's dear.
0: Well, that by the, the way, that's probably, yeah, well, <laughs> that's more true than I wish it were. But um, And then the screenplay for the film was featured in the 2011 Blacklist, a list of the most liked unmade scripts of the year. And it's funny because, you know, in um, during the, the film... Affleck recites the rhyme, Solomon Grundy, to calm himself down. That's his calming mechanism. Remind me. It's the DC comic. Solomon oh. Grundy is actually a villain who comes into conflict with Batman, which is so funny oh. because he played Batman. And so. see, that was one yeah. of my
1: grievances with the film, is that Ben Affleck would not have been my first choice to play an accountant. So when I saw the trailer, I thought, wow, I wonder how he got cast in this. But then suddenly there's a tonal shift, and he's supposed to be a superhero
0: mm-hmm. or well, an assassin.
1: Where exactly. I thought, okay, maybe he wants to show that he really wasn't miscast as Batman.
0: And at the beginning, when, when the, his brother gives his, the finger to his mother as she's running away from them, yeah, from the window... Not my
1: favorite moment.
0: Uh, well, I'm sure not. That's not your thing. Uh, I thought to myself, you know what? The, the accountant is not the person with Asperger's, which is what I thought it was at the time. Um, it's the brother, you did? I did. And then I turned out to be, oh, I'm not going to say what happened. You know, I turned out to be wrong. So, But I did think, for for half the movie, I thought the accountant was the brother, not the kid. With, really? Yeah, I did. Even though they showed I him know, I'm the just puzzle telling you, yes. and the... Well, because the brother, at, when he's a child, he never moves. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He just sits there. And in a way, I thought that was not normal. You know, so... So that's what I thought, but it was wrong. And I thought the but I did think the music was wonderful.
2: He has highly advanced cognitive skills. The obsessive personality. Can our son lead a normal life?
0: Define normal. And it's right. You know, the song in the trailer is Everything in Its Right Place by Radiohead. i would never even heard of that before. It's a very fitting uh-huh. theme for the right. movie. Right, Everything in Its Place, of mm-hmm. course, of course, of course. So, And then J.K. Um, Simmons, don't you just think he's wonderful and everything? He was very good in this. Well,
1: again, I thought his role was thankless. He's, of course, the recent Oscar winner for Whiplash.
0: I've always liked him, but... Wait, but he was also with her in... You mentioned it earlier already. And then it would have to be up in, up in the air. It was up in the
2: air. He's capable of coming in cold, uncooking years of books, and getting out alive.
0: We talked last week about how Girl on the Train was in the mid $40 million range. Mm-hmm. Okay, now if you've seen that, which many of our listeners have, and then you see this, guess how much this one cost? Sixty. It was also in the mid-40s. Okay. And there were so many action shots and things that I thought to myself, how could this be the same amount of money? It seemed to me it would be a much higher cost movie, and also much it has sort of bigger stars in a way. So I thought they would have to be paid more, and there were more of them. And Do I mean, you
1: think it's going to make its money back.
0: Yes. Well, it already did. Already, it's it's just been out a day and a half, and it's done all already thirty five million. But you know what? I think just from mm.
1: word of mouth, it's going to drop off quickly and precipitously. You know who directed it? Who? Gavin O'Connor. Okay. Who did a movie that you did a written review of uh, recently? Which is? Shane got
0: a gun. Oh. Huh. With Natalie Portman. Well, you know, I think he needs. I think he needs to go to school. <laughs>
1: well, here Ben Affleck had a gun.
0: Well, he needs it to go to school because didn't make he's not. Really more you know, there's, this was a director's nightmare. It was the direction, and this was not good. I would
1: love to know how much they changed that script from when it was noted in 2011. Mm-hmm. As being a great script that wasn't yet produced. Well, it also I feel goes. Like they went in and messed with the script.
0: It also goes to show that sometimes when things sit on the shelf too long, by the time they do get made, it's it's a debacle. You know, it w- this was a debacle. A I movie. felt
1: like this is one of those movies where studio execs get their fingers mm-hmm. in the pot and start saying you need a love interest, you need a, because even at the very beginning, where we open with the Treasury Department.
2: Say you're the head of the Sinaloa cartel. Who can you trust to track your stolen cash?
1: This is what I discussed last week. You think, okay, the woman that works for the Treasury Department is going to be after Ben Affleck the whole movie? That chase drops away quickly. It does. She kind of disappears. There were just too
0: many things they were trying to layer in at the beginning. It was like, okay, now take this, now take this, now take this, and by the way, we're going to tie it all together later. But pay attention to it, and then they it didn't it didn't evolve. There was no evolution Mm -hmm. to this plot at all. You're absolutely right.
1: And then in between. A boring act one and a boring act two, they stuck in a boring car chase. <laughs> they did, they did. And you know who I've always loved who was so underutilized in this? Who? Jean Smart. Three-time Emmy winner, Jean Smart. For Samantha Who and Fraser. I've loved her since designing women. Wait,
0: well, what did she play? Oh, did she play the woman who gets uh, wh- yeah. She plays the
1: sister and the wife. Oh, okay. Huh. She only has about two scenes. Huh totally underutilized but she's always good yeah she was the only one that really made her dialogue truly believable
0: um i don't know that they could have made it believable but i still think they all took all these great actors took the role roles they did because the end i think has a big payoff i think it's an amazingly wonderful evolution the last 10 minutes i couldn't take my eyes off the screen i thought it was great yeah i don't know
1: Mm -hmm. i was ready to go but i think they might
0: have <coughs> Well, read- you apparently weren't because we had to sit there another 15 <laughs> minutes while the credits rolled. So don't even say so that out might loud. Might have read a different script though from huh. what ended Maybe. up being yeah. edited It'd be interesting shown if we can find that out.
1: But i'm sure Gene Smart was thinking any episode of 24 was probably more gripping. Just it wasn't it's it doesn't have it. And yet look, you know, her one of her more recent TV appearances was Fargo.
0: It was, it that's goes true. It to show yep.
1: the dominance of TV and the yeah. writing done on TV today is it's very much better.
0: strong. Also, I think two and a half hours is too long for a it's film. It's too long. It is, yeah. Well, we're going to move right on now to divorce mm-hmm. uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's our Emmy Award-winning actor who made Carrie Bradshaw a cultural touchstone returns to TV with divorce. And to HBO. And I know, and right in written a series. And
1: created by Wren. Sharon Horgan, Wren. who writes and stars in Catastrophe, which I've really enjoyed.
0: By the way, I think it's a bold move for her to take this because... Sarah Jessica Parker? Yes, because when you've got a series like... You know, Sex and the City, which Mm -hmm. is iconic and is going to be around for decades to come and has established you as a certain kind of actor to then take on a similar type series, Mm -hmm. Divorce, you know, so now they were looking for a man and then they had two movies where they, you know, get married and now she's going into Divorce. I think that's... Yeah, I think it's a risk. I totally agree. I I think it's like Michael Jordan coming out of retirement. (laughs) And then becoming a baseball player. And
1: I I think it was maybe a mistake with the series. Yeah,
0: exactly. I can't believe it's been 12 years since Sex in the City last aired on HBO. Well, here's what bothers me about the whole premise anyway. Okay. Okay, and it also bothers me about Sex in the City. Every single thing around Sex in the City, and now it appears to be, after not seeing very much of it, but divorce... Why is it that women are consumed about men? You know, the conversations mm-hmm. in sex in the city were not about their careers and what they're gonna do next and you know, oh my gosh, we just saw this great exhibit. It was always about um it was always about men. Mm-hmm. And now here we are, and she's her best friend's conversations are about men. It's again lives that are totally the foundation of these women's lives it are once again based on how much happiness they can find with a man and, and I why am I I just like what really can't you have a bigger better
1: life than that I just well, don't understand it's it a very good point because I was so excited when I heard that Sharon Horgan was doing the writing because I thought okay this is gonna mine a lot of humor And then I read that this is not Carrie Bradshaw. It's not Sex in the City. The very opening scene Uh. has Carrie Bradshaw in front of the mirror checking her crow's feet. So I thought, this is Carrie Bradshaw now in her 50s, chronically depressed. And so the whole pilot left me very depressed because I thought it was her character just... Years later and much unhappier. Okay,
0: and I thought the opening scene was one of the best, funniest opening scenes I'd seen in a series in a really long time. Moving away from the mirror? When her husband comes upstairs and says, he's holding a coffee can, and he couldn't... The daughter was... They have two clearly two bathrooms in the house, and the daughter was in one bathroom, and she was in another one for a very long period of time, and he holds up the coffee can, and he said, I had to poop in the coffee can because I couldn't get into a bath. I mean, it was. I thought it was... a. It, the way it layered in was very, very funny, and I thought it was great. But
1: you know what? That was Thomas Hayden Church, but you know where we just saw that exact same opening sequence? Where? The hollers.
0: Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Same thing. But it was funny then. It's funny now, I think. So there was an interview with uh, Ms. Parker, and... One of the questions I thought was interesting, and it's, it's certainly relevant here. So it says, your divorce character, Frances, is not always sympathetic. Our audience is ready for a heroine who is complicated. And, and she answered the question this way. We used to go back and forth. Should Carrie have an affair? And I'm like, guys, Tony Soprano is a murderer, exclamation point. Frances is real. She's a smart person. And we weren't with her for those 17 years of marriage. We're with her now, she's exhausted and she's made some bad choices. But those choices are gonna be very familiar to some people. And I thought that was funny that she was making the comparison that Tony Soprano could be a murderer and still compelling and sympathetic character to the audience, which is true. And she's right, you know, does a woman only have to be good to be a good sympathetic character? Can't she be layered with some complexity? I thought it was a good answer.
1: You know, yesterday, also at the Boston Book Festival, I saw a really interesting panel. And one of the speakers was Maria Semple, who wrote Where'd You Go, Bernadette?, I didn't realize she started out in television. She was a huge writer and producer for Mad About You, Suddenly Susan, Arrested Development. Oh, wow. okay. And she said back when she had her career in television, everybody had to be likable because people had stressed out jobs, and they wanted to come home and hang out with people who were good and nice, and you wanted to spend time with them. And then there was this shift in television, partly through HBO and The Sopranos, where people got dark and became antiheroes. And everything kind of took on that... Well, women
0: had to be likable. I don't know that men had to be likable in all those series back then. But
1: now, I mean, you look at Breaking Bad, and Tom Parada was part of the panel, and he wrote the book Little Children. And he said even when that was made into a movie... And then he wrote *The Leftovers*, and that was made into a series on television. They started becoming darker. The TV adaptations, because that's the landscape today. Well,
0: it is. It is. You know, it is a dark landscape. That's true. Well, I feel like *Divorce* is a very dark take on *Sex and yeah. the City*. But there, you know, the series opener, you know, the pilot is a. You know, I'm. I often think pilots. Sometimes you have to watch more than the pilot, because the pilots just—they're just not. It's not a honed presentation yet, and I think sometimes they're awkward. I thought the, the pilot of Sex in the City, for example, I thought it was terrible, and I would never have continued to watch it if it hadn't, have, you know, started, it kicked in, in in the third or fourth episode of the series, but this, well, the end of this opening episode is excellent. It really is. It's a great, great closed Speaking of pilots, though, Gavin O'Connor, who did
1: the accountant, right? Do you know what series he did the pilot for? No, what? It's a series you love, The
0: Americans. Oh, I love The Americans, and mm-hmm. it's coming out next month again.
2: You think you're the only one that wonders if this is working? Because you're not. No, I know that. I know that. I mean, this crisis at Nick at Diane's—that's supposed to bring us closer together, Francis. I, 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 I wish I could explain it. I. It, it was like like time stood still and I was outside my body and I am watching myself. I am hearing myself say these things to you, things I guess I felt at the moment, but obviously that. that is not who I am. That is not what I want.
0: One of the things we had talked about, the Woody Allen series, which was in, in six parts. Crisis in six scenes. Exactly, okay. We said that it was like a full movie cut, you know, divided by six. Into 20 and twenty. Exactly, minutes. Exactly, so exactly. Nice. Okay, this was a true series. The, each episode is clearly going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. To divorce? Yeah. Divorce had a beginning and a middle and an end to the first episode. And the end is a, ta- is a tag and a hook into the what's going to be episode number two. Mm -hmm. but Woody Allen's, the end of each of his episodes, it it reminded me of the end of each of Woody Allen's episodes, really are just a, oh, station break, we'll be right back. In the
1: pilot of Divorce, when Carrie Bradshaw, I should stop saying that, but when Sarah Jessica Parker's character, Francis, and I felt no affinity for her name or her husband's name, Francis and Robert, I didn't think Um, their names really fit.
0: Yeah, it's like Frankie and Johnny. Yeah,
1: exactly. She says to him, I want to save my life while I still care about it.
0: To me, that sets the whole tone of just a depressing series. Well, uh, you know, I also think it's, a, you know, as as people's lives evolve, I think a lot of people go through that moment in time where they say the same thing. Look, I, you know, while I can, I need to leave this marriage before I can't. You but know? do you think
1: they're ever going to get happy? Because Thomas A. Church and Sarah Jessica Parker looked like they had been crying for days when this pilot was
0: filmed. Yeah, I think they could get happy. I think, you know, yeah. Uh, I think I love the way he stood up to her in it. I do. I loved it. I thought it was great.
2: I want to save my life while I still care about it. As lousy as the marriage is, the divorce is going to be much worse.
1: I was happy to see Tracy Letts. I'm always happy to see Tracy Letts on the stage, on the big screen, on television. We just saw him in Indignation where he was fantastic. Yeah, he
0: was very good. And And his wife... Molly I Shannon. Yeah, she's gonna be a major role in this. And she's gonna be the one that's not likable. You know, there's not a lot that's likable about her. So I probably
1: don't find Molly Shannon likable. You never did? I haven't yet. Oh, okay, well. You know Oh you found her likable in this? No, I didn't. No, that's what I'm saying. She's not gonna be likable. Yeah. When we did our podcast on oh. me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Yeah. Not likable. I'm waiting for that Molly Shannon role where I understand the. Yeah, the she's done.
0: Now, by the way, um, it's important to note that uh, Sarah says that she sees divorce as a portrait of two people. Mm-hmm. Um, she learned that it's the divorce is the very act of trying to get away from the other person requires that you do it with the other person you're trying to get away from. So she said, I always felt that Carrie's journey was toward love and home. It was how she chose to go about capturing love. Frances feels, to me in a way, more isolated, more alone, because she's made decisions in a very different way. Neither of them feel defined by the men with whom they're entangled. I'm a woman, so what is familiar familiar to me you might see in a way that I might not recognize. Now, that's a little complex, and I'm not sure what exactly it means, other than she, I think, sees Carrie as a happier uh, more positive person than we're going to see in Francis, which would make total sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And also when you look at the chapter in her
1: life, Sex in the City represented hope and potential, and they're on the cusp of discovering themselves and mm-hmm. something in New York City. And to me, watching this pilot was very depressing because supposedly they've, they've just spent more than a decade together, and I just got a sense of alienation and lack of contentment with their lives and with each other and to me that's a difficult topic to take on
0: yeah it is uh and i again it's a bold move on her part to try to get another series going and uh, good for her for trying for sure you know i think it really does speak to her her uh, you know willingness to take a risk because it's a big risk but i don't think it's going to have the payoff of sex in the city
1: and yet sarah jessica parker has given some fascinating interviews and talks you told me Holsters is so funny. You can hear the train go by, and did you notice in *Divorce* we were back on the Metro North, just like <laughs> yeah, Earl exactly, on the train. Exactly. So it's our own special little local. Sound <laughs> exactly. Effect.
0: And by the way, we never have trains where we where we. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it never happens. So there you go. Um, she was the class day speaker at Harvard Law School this year. Hmm, I and didn't know that.
1: There were two things you pointed me to that I thoroughly enjoyed. One was her little sixty-second
2: interview by Vogue.
0: What's your favorite season in New York City? Fall. What's your favorite activity in New York City? Walking. Would you ever leave New York City?
2: Not voluntarily. What are
0: three words to describe living in New York City?
2: Symphonic, tiny, real. And the other
1: was Alec Baldwin's podcast. Alec
0: Baldwin's podcast interviews, some of them are excellent, and I did suggest that you might want to listen to this one. She was very forthcoming.
1: I'm going to play a little bit of it here. I thought this was so brilliant, what she said about acting with someone when the energy is just not there.
2: Mm -hmm. For me, what is interesting is be- you, I mean, eventually you become very famous. It's you, it's Mary Tyler Moore, it's Jean Stapleton, and you become one of the most prominent women in the history of television. But for, for, for many yes. times in your career, yeah. you're the girl. Yeah. And now you're number one on the call sheet. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you get to decide who the men are that are coming in the door. Yeah. How did that work with you? You know, I mean, you have like kind of um, you... tastes and and you react in ways that you didn't even know you would i would have you know feelings about certain names and and michael would have feelings and that was you know sometimes hard because he would write it so he imagined things and so i couldn't argue with what what he saw in his head my problem was that i would i knew what i was going to have to do on screen with them And I think there's something very interesting about that, which is hard to explain to people, but you and I can get into it now. So you know when they've given you somebody to play opposite, and everybody wanted them but you. because what you'd allow that. And what you know, I would allow it under duress. When someone's holding me down and saying, you have to trust me, you have to trust me, I know you haven't seen this out of this person. So what I think is hard to explain to these people, right, the Senate that believes in their choice is that you know what they won't bring and you know what you will then have to do is tell the story for two people on camera and i think what's really really dangerous about that is you end up projecting onto the other person what you wish they were bringing into the scene and what i think happens is you become a bad actor you overact that's a fascinating you try to create Chemistry and romance and love and you imbue the scene with everything and you can't because when you feel it Even if you're not in love with this person. I've worked with countless actors who I I'm not in love with them I really mean it, but I love working with them and I can I Don't care what they look like smell like where they come from who they are how tall how short if they're smart and interesting and talented, they're good actors, I do not Talmud care. Talent is the greatest aphrodisiac. Okay. You know, this is how much
1: I link Sarah Jessica Parker to Sex in the City. I forgot. By the way, I
0: didn't really watch. I watched it uh, sporadically. Oh, really? Yeah. I remember
1: even that final episode. Well, the final episode, everyone watched, remember? exactly. I remember getting invited over for a dinner, and I just hemmed and hawed, and they said, no, don't worry, they're going to have the TV on, and we're going to watch the episode. I was like, okay, I kind of forgot she's originally from Ohio.
0: Right. She I is. always thought she was and from New York. And she played
1: Annie. She played Annie. The sun survived. will come out
0: tomorrow. And By the, the way, you can go on YouTube and you can type in, The sun will come out tomorrow, Just Sarah Jessica Parker. She came back for some tribute to Annie or other 10 years later, and she sings it with some of the other Annie um. Play, you know, uh, actors, and it's really fun to watch she's her do it. She's one of the few to survive the curse because
1: you know how most kids who played Annie, yeah, their yeah. lives take a a, yeah. a difficult turn. There, <laughs> yeah, she's been acting since she was eight. Yeah, she has. She was a family of actors; they all did it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Do you know though? Supposedly, she wasn't the first choice to play Carrie Bradshaw. She wasn't the first choice, and do you know who was? Dana Delaney. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Who yep. turned down the role. Who turned it down. She thought she wasn't stylish enough. Yeah. And she turned down the role that went to Marsha Cross on Desperate Housewives.
0: Well, it's funny because um, Sarah Jessica Parker was not a stylish... You know, she. You know, Sex and the City made her stylish. And they all say that it was all, all of the success of the fashion-forwardness of Sex and the City came from the person who did the dressing, and she had a a secondhand store down in Soho, and because the budget wasn't there to really have Blahniks on their little feet, and it really was one of the major reasons people watched the series, so it was Mm -hmm. really good. She really became a style icon. Well, I have a feeling we're gonna have to watch a couple more, maybe we'll mention it later in our season to see the direction that it goes, but I just, I don't see it being another Sex in the City.
2: When did it start to go off the tracks in your mind? Well, perhaps when you grew the mustache? You said you liked the mustache. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll get there eventually.
0: Okay, so next week maybe we'll have better news for you all. We were not very positive today, O'Toole. We, namaste. <laughs> you
1: know what? I need one of those Luke's okay. pop up diners <laughs> right okay, now. With okay, okay, yes. Mistress and we're soon. Stu-
0: yeah, exactly, exactly.